Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, after a high-profile police encounter brought national criticism to the city of Boulder and its law enforcement, city officials sought to improve the disciplinary process involving police. They came up with sort of a hybrid model, having a professional monitor combined with a civilian oversight panel. Coming up, we speak with the person appointed to monitor the police about where Boulder law enforcement goes from here. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. To start our show today, we are heading up into the mountains where many communities have declared housing emergencies as high prices and low inventory have led to shortages of needed workers who have difficulty finding affordable places to live. In Steamboat Springs, city leaders are eyeing short-term rentals as a possible culprit. And as KUNC's Scott Franz reports, a decision to put a halt on them is causing friction between businesses trying to bounce back from the pandemic and residents who want to free up housing for locals. After a year of coronavirus restrictions and canceled travel plans, thousands of tourists have been flocking to Steamboat Springs to cool off in the Yampa River. Where are you guys from? Kentucky. Fun Tucky? I love that place. Today, dozens of people are lining up outside Peter Vandekar's river tubing business. Is it rough water? Well, define rough. You know, I mean, for me, it's scary as heck. But I'm kind of a chicken. He started 35 years ago with a single limousine to ferry tourists down the river. And now, even with droughts causing shorter tubing seasons, his numbers are off the charts. I mean, there's days where we'll put 600 people on the river. Last year we did about somewhere between 15,000 and 16,000 people. I mean, that's, and that's probably like four or 5,000 above just an average summer. But all of those tubing, hiking, and skiing visitors need a place to stay. And that's where things are getting complicated. There's 10 homes on this street, and three of those homes are vacation rentals. Tori Wadnick has lived near the base of the ski area for 20 years. She says the spike in tourism and vacation rentals is changing the character of her street. For starters, the hot tub next door is always full of strangers. There have been many nights the kids have asked to sleep in a different room, um, sleep on the couch because they can't sleep with all the noise that's coming from the hot tubs. As we walk through her neighborhood, she points to other problems. Out-of-town guests are leaving their trash outside, which attracts bears, and... We have a lot of people pull into the neighborhood uh, staring at their GPS, trying to find the unit that they're renting and not paying attention to the kids who are playing tennis in the street or riding bikes. But most of all, Watnick says they're taking away homes that could be rented or bought by local workers. The ongoing housing shortage has made it hard for her to hire enough workers for her event rental business. It's an emergency for employers, it's an emergency for employees, for families, for teachers, for firefighters, regular people who make this town tick. Wadnick is so concerned, she pulled over onto the shoulder of Interstate 70 last month to call into a Steamboat City Council meeting and ask for a timeout on vacation rentals. We deal with major disruption in our lives. And on the flip side, we aren't able to hire anyone because 
people in this town don't have a place to live. Council members, including Kathy Meyer, agreed. And in a first-of-its-kind decision in Colorado, they voted to pause new applications for 90 days. Day after day, this council is getting complaints about the impacts of neighborhoods and the bad actors that are ruining it for a few people out there who do rent out their homes. More than 200 vacation rentals are registered in Steamboat Springs, but that's only a small slice of the pie. City records show more than 4,000 active short-term rentals, with most not needing the type of permit the city is trying to regulate. But the decision to pause even a small portion of them is stirring up controversy. We live in a resort community. We are not Denver. We are not San Francisco. We are not that. Sarah Bradford owns a vacation rental company managing about 40 properties. She fears the council's action will be misinterpreted as the city saying no to the very tourists she counts on for business. That's hard when I hear people say, you know, shut the door behind us, we're the last people in. I don't like that sentiment in Steamboat. And I think it's because so many people showed up during the pandemic. We all felt a little defensive during the pandemic, like, don't get near me. And it just proliferated that sentiment. Radford is not against adding more regulations, and she agrees there should be limits on where they can be to limit the impact on neighborhoods. But she fears overregulation. We need to open our arms again and welcome these people back in. They're really great people that come to visit, for the most part. The city council estimates short-term lodging generates more than $3 million in tax revenue each year, or about 11% of the city's entire general fund. And they are not sure how many of the units might otherwise be rented or bought by local workers. But one thing is already clear. The city's young professionals are having a hard time finding places to live. Jay Dickert is a personal banker who is looking to buy his first home. Just about every place I've looked at has gone under contract within about three days of going onto the market. He's already looked at 15 places without making an offer. After he finishes his cocktail at a happy hour downtown, he's going to look at number 16, a one-bedroom, 450-square-foot condo listed for $400,000. And a good majority of those places are going sometimes 10, sometimes 20% over asking, like crazy numbers, and a lot of it's in cash too, which makes it hard to compete when money's coming from out of town. It's such a drastic change that we're, we're losing the people who make us who we are, who make us this kind, welcoming, fun, interesting, exciting town to live in. Even with 90 more apartments of workforce housing being built on the west end of town and state lawmakers considering spending hundreds of millions of American Rescue Plan dollars on housing next year, Tori Wadnick says the city does not have any more time to study the issue. The longer that this goes on and we don't fix it and make it not free, not a handout, but a, a place where people with hard work can survive and thrive, I, I think our, our, our town will change forever. Meanwhile, other mountain towns are starting to consider their own actions on short-term rentals. A petition is circulating in Frisco and Summit County to restrict them. And Pagosa Springs in southern Colorado is kicking off a survey this month to find out the impact on workforce housing. The pause on vacation rentals in Steamboat Springs lifts in early September. I'm Scott Franz. 
In 2019, video of an incident between Boulder police and a young black man outside his apartment went viral. It sparked national outrage and calls for more oversight of law enforcement and how complaints against them are handled. In response, Boulder created a position for its first-ever independent police monitor. Joseph Lapari has been in this role since the end of July 2020, and he joins us now to talk about his work. Joseph, welcome to Colorado Edition. So good to be with you. Thank you, Aaron. Now, this position, as I mentioned, was created as a direct response to an incident with a young man in Boulder, Zade Atkinson. Give us some background on what happened and how it led to the creation of this position. So on March 1st, 2019, an officer stopped a young man who was outside of uh, an apartment uh, that he lived at uh, while he was picking up trash. The officer questioned whether he actually lived there or not. The individual told him that he did. There was a some disagreement or um, some confusion of whether he lived there or not. At a certain point during the interaction, the officer uh, briefly pulled his gun on on the individual. That led to the interaction um, sort of becoming uh, even more confrontational. The video was released of that, um, and there was a significant degree of public outrage um, in response. The city council held a meeting uh, within a few days to gather uh, input from the public on what should be done to improve and strengthen accountability and transparency in the disciplinary process in Boulder for, for the police. Out of that meeting, a decision was made uh, to form a task force made up of some city councilors, some members of the community. And so they met for several months. To, they made some recommendations to the city council on what the oversight structure should look like here in Boulder. And so they came up with sort of a hybrid model, which would be having a, a professional monitor combined with a civilian oversight panel. And both of those entities would have the authority to review investigations of the complaints against police officers and make uh, disciplinary recommendations to the department. So that's how it all came about. Um, and then since the summer of uh, 2020, when I, I arrived at the end of July, since then we've been working uh, with an implementation team to first pass the final version of the ordinance, uh, Ordinance 8430, that created both my, sort of formalized my role as the monitor and then created the oversight panel. For people who don't know what an independent police monitor does, tell us a little more about how it works. So individuals can file complaints either directly with me as the monitor, with the Office of the Independent Police Monitor, or they can file their complaints with the police department. Either way, the, the complaint will first come to me. I will classify it um, as either a use of force, a truthfulness issue, failure to follow uh, policies and procedures, general orders. Then I send it over to the police department uh, and their professional standards unit or the officer's supervisor will actually conduct the investigation. I observe that investigation in real time. So I have access to all of the documents, the, the records from the case, the videos. I sit in on all of the interviews with the officers, with the complainants, with the witnesses, and I can make recommendations throughout the process to the department. Um, so my role is run really of ensuring that the accountability process within the department is functioning as it should, and the investigations are thorough, complete, and fair, and that nothing is being missed in the course of those investigations. And just to clarify, your recommendations are are just that, right? They're not 
automatically implemented. Correct. That's right. And that's that's the case in just about all civilian oversight of law enforcement around the country is that um, it's recommendation based. And there's usually some sort of mechanism where the deciding party has to respond in public or in writing to those recommendations. And, you know, to, to make those recommendations effective, you have to provide some analysis and, and, and data to, to make the case that there is currently a problem. And then this is the solution based on best practices from around the country and data reviews from how the implementation of, of new policies in other places. I'm curious what kind of models or solutions you might be thinking about working toward in Boulder. Is there anything you would like to see? One of the, the concerns that I have about where policing could go in the future here um, is around homelessness and the unhoused uh, population in Boulder. And my concern is that if we don't take larger, more holistic actions to address uh, the needs of the unhoused population, then we will see greater and greater reliance on uh, the police department, which will tell you they are not really equipped to solve this problem. This is not a, a homelessness is not a problem that the police can solve, and they will tell you that. Um, and so working with the police department, working with our oversight panel, working with all the service providers and the, the housing services in the, the, the city and the, the county, I think it's going to be something that we spend a lot of uh, effort and, and resources on over the next few months and year or so, precisely because if we don't see something different done, I think we will see increasing confrontation between um, our unhoused community and our police department. And it'll, it could lead to instances of, of violence. It could lead to continued loss of trust between members of the community and the police department. And so we, I would like to try to get out ahead of that and make sure we're addressing this issue from many as many different angles as we can as a city and as a county and as a region so that it's not just we don't just rely on the police department and wait for something really bad to happen in that in that space boulder in particular has been through some trauma this year i'm wondering you know what you're seeing um, if there's anything you can share yeah um it's certainly been a tough year uh, across the board for police officers but you know particularly here in boulder with the uh, active shooter at king supers that you know, that that was definitely, um, you know, I think the toughest thing that a police department can go through, losing one of their own and, and something like that. Um, I guess the thing I could say about that is I, that I've just been really impressed with the resilience of the Boulder police officers. Um, I deal, I interact with them quite a bit. You know, it was hard, but I, I think the support that they received from a lot of the, the community, that was really appreciated. And that, that I think, that really meant a lot to the officers. Um, and, in, you know, in a, in a way, it's hard to say, you know, when something so, so tragic happens. But I do, I do think that some officers with that outpouring of support helped balance out the perspective of some officers who may have felt like everyone is against this. The world hates police officers right now. And to have folks come out after that tragedy and say, hey, you know, we're thinking about y'all. It was important for officers to, to hear that and to know that. And so it may have the tragedy, as, as tragic as it was, may have actually opened up the public's perspective of law enforcement and realized, hey, these folks are, are actually putting their lives on the, on the line for us. And on the other side, helped officers realize, actually, yeah, some folks really do appreciate what we do. So and, and we need moments like that to help heal the, the, the divide that has developed over the past few years. Um, so, you know, we'll see what how things go forward. But I think the, the department has 
has handled it about as well as, as a police department could. Um, but it clearly took a toll on, on everyone as, as individuals. Joseph Lapari is the independent police monitor for Boulder. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Aaron. Good to be with you. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last summer, with the attention of the country widely focused on the police murder of George Floyd and with discussions about police reform happening at our state capitol, the Denver School Board took a step to reduce the number of police interactions with students by voting to phase school resource officers out of its schools. That unanimous resolution also directed the board to reinvest money spent on SROs into new alternatives. Interactions with police can prove traumatizing for students. And recent state data shows Denver's black students are disproportionately arrested at school. It also shows they're disproportionately ticketed and referred to law enforcement. Chalkbeat Colorado reporter Melanie Asmar has been reporting on how policing and students intersect through DPS schools. And this week, she published a feature that details how numerous police interactions at school have affected the lives of one DPS student and his mother. Her piece also explores Denver Public Schools' path to reform through new measures and investments. Melanie, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with 11-year-old Kal-El and his mother, Jennifer. By the end of fifth grade, uh, back in May this year, he had more than 30 different interactions with either police or armed security guards in school. Tell us more about his story and about what he has experienced. Kal-El is 11, like you said, just finished fifth grade. And the first time he had a police interaction at school was in the second grade. He refused to kind of come in from recess one day and a teacher threatened to call the police and, and Kalel kind of took off and tried to scale a fence. The police weren't called that day, but they were called several times that year, which sort of started his interactions with police. And he has um, some disabilities. He has ADHD and uh, mood regulation, dysregulation disorder, and some behavior challenges. And sometimes he says he would get like frustrated or angry in school. He might throw things around a classroom. And so some of these behaviors have resulted in schools either calling armed school district security guards or police. And his mother kind of has kept this detailed spreadsheet over the years of his interactions with police in addition to like tracking, you know, some of his um, like behavior at school and, and sort of how, how his school days are going. And I, I interviewed Kalel, and he's able to talk, you know, sort of um, about how these interactions have affected him over the years. He says he's not so much angry or, or, mad at the police as he is scared. He has nightmares about the police. He's been worried that they will shoot him. Or he said, I, I'm worried that if my mom shows up at the school, that they'll shoot my mom. And and he's um he's he's very like frightened of them. And his mom says like he's never been arrested. Um, he's never been ticketed. Um, and his mom says, you know, many of the officers who interacted with him were kind and compassionate, but just sort of their mere presence and the fact that you have an adult in a uniform with a gun, it, you know, was very sort of terrifying to him. And he sort of internalized this narrative that we call the police on bad guys. And, you know, I must be a bad guy because the school keeps calling the police on me. It's stories like Cal L's, I think that in theory were on the minds of Denver school board members. 
as they unanimously voted to end the contract with Denver police. You reported on that resolution from the board last summer when it happened. Can you kind of bring us back to when that decision was made and what you were hearing at that time? Yeah, this decision was obviously in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and and in the midst of a lot of protests here in uh, Colorado and around the nation. The school board members who sort of brought forward that resolution were really concerned in some of the racial disparities that school districts see in school discipline and in sort of tickets and arrests at school, which tend to happen to um, middle school and high school aged kids, uh, not necessarily elementary school aged kids like Kal-El, but the data shows that that Black students, as you mentioned, are, are more likely to be ticketed and arrested at school and have interaction with law enforcement. And so I think that was really on the minds of the school board members who brought forward this resolution. And I think the idea was to say, you know, let's find alternatives to ticketing and arresting students at school. And, you know, with sort of that trauma in mind, like maybe there are other ways to address some of the issues that police officers were brought into the schools in the first place to address. Right. Now, you looked through both public data and Denver Police Department data that Chalkbeat obtained and found that armed police officers responded to schools more than 10,000 times in 2019-2020. Can you break down these calls and what you found when combing through the data? The data showed that school sort of armed security guards responded to calls from schools about 5,500 times and and Denver police responded to schools about 4,700 times. And that was in that 2019-2020 school year, as you said, which was sort of cut short by COVID-19. Everybody went online that March. So that was kind of a truncated school year. But yeah, those those 10,000 calls, like a lot of them were for very routine matters, a, a burglar alarm going off or a teacher is like locked out of a building. So a lot of that stuff was very routine. There were some calls that were crimes against children. So like child abuse, kidnapping, that was a pretty small percentage of the calls, like around 5%. Um, And then there were also um, about 25% of the police calls were for suspected crimes, like marijuana possession or fighting. And it's not clear from the data I have whether all of those involved students. Some of them may have involved adults at the schools. And then there were a small percentage of calls that were, um, they call it children in crisis or disobedient students, which are children who are uh, like experiencing a mental health crisis or a behavior crisis. So the calls were for like a a wide variety of things. A, A very good portion of them were again for those sort of routine matters. Well, this resolution last summer to terminate the contract with Denver police also reallocated money to some new measures and partnerships. Can you run us through the things they're trying instead? Yeah, the resolution sort of directed them to remove the police and redefine school safety, keeping students like mental health in mind. And so they removed these 18 officers from Denver schools And the money that they were paying for these 18 officers is not necessarily enough to like hire another counselor for every school. So instead they're hiring some folks who will work kind of out of the district headquarters and can be like deployed to schools to help with various issues like discipline and, uh, you know, restorative justice and um, responding to like threats from students responding um, to suicidal behavior. So some of the things that, maybe the school resource officers used to do, they will, you know, have these new staff members 
out of the district headquarters. They're also looking at setting up, uh, it's called a co-responder model. So on nights and weekends, when like school counselors and school psychologists aren't working, the district's own like security guards still do work. There's um, a, a small force of them that work 24 seven. And so if they got a call about a child in crisis on a night or a weekend, they would respond to that call, but with a mental health provider from the Mental Health Center of Denver. And so an armed officer and uh, you know, a possibly a counselor or a therapist would show up. And this is a model that the city of Denver already has, and they're looking at expanding it into Denver Public Schools. It's been over a year since that resolution from Denver Public Schools. What are you hearing in your reporting about these efforts? So it's a little bit tough because of, you know, the pandemic. I think that, you know, last school year, as the officers were being phased out for at least for high school, middle and high schoolers in Denver, the year was nearly all remote learning. And so a lot of the school resource officers weren't working inside the schools anyway, because the students were remote. So I think that a lot of this is like to be seen. And I think this upcoming school year, we'll really see how this plays out. Melanie Asmar is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to talk about your reporting on this. Thanks for having me on. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll hear how recent drought conditions in the West could soon be felt through increased electricity bills. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.